You're listening to Podcast by Committee, produced by Starting Five Productions. And now, here's Andrew and Max Brill. Thank you, Mason, as always, for the introduction, and welcome back to Podcast by Committee. I'm one of your hosts, Andrew Brill. And I'm Max Brill. We've got a bunch to talk about. The Preakness stakes are coming up. There's some basketball playoffs on the line, the NHL playoffs. They don't start until... I guess this weekend, so there's not a ton to talk about there because that's all said and done, even though the Rangers fired their coach. But there is some controversy, I guess, even though I picked the winner of the Kentucky Derby. I had no idea that the cream that Medina Spirit was using contained a banned substance. And, Max, that's where we'll begin. And Bob Baffert completely baffled by how Medina Spirit came up with 21 picograms of a banned substance in a test. Yeah, I can't say I'm shocked. I mean, I'm definitely surprised because nobody ever expects the winning horse of the Kentucky Derby to come up as a, a, a banned substance user. I guess it's the trainers, really. The horse isn't going out probably and like finding the stuff, so the trainers that inject it. But, uh, you know, you really just hate to see this. And it's already a sport that has a lot of controversy surrounding it. Animal rights groups have really, really spoken up in the last decade, especially about the cruelty that some of these horses undergo. Uh, a lot of these horses, I mean, you know it best, the, the Kentucky Derby is for what, two to three-year-olds? Three-year-olds. Yeah, those horses are really young still. And a lot of people have problems with racing horses that are that young or racing horses at all. And you add this drug saga into the mix, it, it just adds more fuel to a fire that doesn't need to grow. The defenders of horse racing are going to say that it's not animal cruelty and, and that the, the horses, you know, don't have a problem with it. But by the same token, the trainers need to be held accountable for what they're doing, both in terms of training the horses and in terms of potentially giving their horses a leg up on the competition. And this is not the first time that Bob Baffert has been caught up in one of these scandals. In July 2020, which was the most recent incident that he has had, he was fined and suspended by Arkansas racing officials after two horses that he had trained were tested positive for a banned substance. And this has happened time and time again with Bob Baffert. It begs the question, and you know this sport much better than I do, Dad, thanks to your experience at the Saratoga racetrack. Is Bob Baffert the greatest trainer of all time? And do these continual failed tests change his legacy forever, especially after a failed test as high profile as this? It's strange because this is the fifth medication violation in the past 13 months for Baffert. Now, look, we've come across baseball players who are taking stuff that have been prescribed to them that have other medications in it. Now, here's the deal. I believe that if you're a horse racing expert trainer, as Bob Baffert is. Look, the guy, look at his record in the Preakness. He's 5-1 and one when he's got a Kentucky Derby winner going for a Preakness win, and we'll talk about the Preakness in a little bit. But if you're a trainer, Max, don't you think if they decide, okay, you know what, my horse has a fungus, I'm going to get this cream from the equine doctor, isn't your first question, well, what's in that cream? What's in that? Or... Do I not want to know? I'm of the belief that he knows because it's his job to know. He has to know what's in those things. Betamethasone is a steroid that's banned. 
it's not going to make the horse run any better, but it's for inflammation in the joints, which I guess could help a horse uh, run better or recover better after a race. It's strange. Now, 21 picograms, as Bob Baffert put it, that's like throwing a grain of sand into a swimming pool. It's not a lot, but it, it could be even less than that. If it's a banned substance, it's a banned substance, and it's his job to know what's in it. Pharmacologists told him 21 picograms that would have no effect on the race. That's what he said. But it doesn't matter. It's a banned substance. Isn't it your job as a professional athlete? And let's face it, these horses can be considered professional athletes, and he's training a professional athlete. Isn't it his job to know what he's putting in this horse's body that could possibly be a violation and disqualify this horse? I think it absolutely is. Don't you? I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree. I, that's, that's the Look, these trainers make boatloads of money. Boatloads of money. Bob Baffert has two two horses racing in the Preakness. Todd Pletcher has a couple horses racing. He had three horses racing in the Kentucky Derby. These guys make boatloads of money. And they are trusted by the people who give them their horses. This horse doesn't bloom. Medina Spirit doesn't isn't owned by Bob Baffert. It's owned by someone else. That someone else isn't a horse trainer. He's a horse owner. He goes to Bob Baffert and says, Bob, I want you to train my horse. I think we've got something special here, and we're going to put Johnny Velasquez on this horse. Train my horse. I trust you to do whatever it needs to be done to try and get this horse to be a champion. That doesn't mean I trust you to do anything, including illegal things, illegal in terms of horse racing, but it's his job to know. He's trusted. He's paid to know these things. If Medina Spirit's second blood sample comes back and shows similar traces of uh, betamethasone, you better believe it's going to be disqualified. Not only that, it's going to have to return a pretty fat check. Its owner is going to have to return a pretty fat check. And that's part of Bob Baffert's salary, too, because they get a percentage of that win. So do I believe that Bob Baffert knew? I, he's got to. He's got to know what's going into his horse or being rubbed on his horse for a fungus. I don't know. I, it's his job to know. Don't tell me, oh, I have no idea, and make up a story that one of the, one of the trainers peed in the stall. He was taking cough medicine. The horse must have eaten the hay, and that's how he got That's what doesn't make any sense, Max. There's too many stupid stories being made up to not know. Yeah, I agree with you there, and I, I, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, this guy is getting paid too much money to not know what is going into the horse's body. So I think that if there was an ointment or cream or whatever that needed to be applied to the horse, he definitely needs to know what's in that because it's his name and reputation on the line, not to mention his paycheck. But here's where I struggle with this. Bob Baffert has gotten dinged, as we said, for doping violations in the past, and he's taken it you know, in stride. He's owned up to it, taken the fines, paid them, done whatever. Here, and I'm not sure if this is because it's a Kentucky Derby winning horse, but here he's adamant that he did nothing wrong. 
So you look at the history of what he's done, you know, when he's gotten hit for doping in the past, he has owned up to it. You would think that if he knew he did something wrong, he would own up to it. But at the same time, nobody is going to believe that that trainer story. So I, I think at the end of the day, what, what I want to see here is accountability. If he did it and he knew, he needs to say that. And like him going on Fox News and blaming cancel culture for getting banned at Churchill Downs is ridiculous, I think. So in spite of whatever happens with the horse, I think that Baffert's behavior after the whole scandal broke has been less than admirable. And, and that's really all I have to say about this is that I wish he would just be accountable or at least not make up stories and try to blame cancel culture. Just be like, look, here's what happened. We're waiting on the test results. I'll be able to address it better after the test results come out. I think and leave it at that. I agree. I agree. I, you know, in, instead of making stuff up, un, unless he was look, you've been in a situation where you know you may be accused or, or unhappy about something that's going on around you, and you like you go ballistic without maybe really sitting back and thinking about it. And maybe he's so adamant about the fact that he has no idea how this ended up in his horse that. He's just going to go spewing things that that are are a remote possibility. I, I don't know, but you know, his past behavior with owning up to these things doesn't coincide with the behavior right now of him being so adamantly opposed to outright cheating. That that you know, maybe he's got a point. You know, I guess we have to wait until the next blood sample is is. The results come out, and that's supposed to happen Friday, the day this podcast comes out. So we'll know at that point if Medina Spirit is even going to run in the Preakness, because there's a possibility that there will be no horse in the three slot, which is where Medina Spirit is slated to run from. Yeah, and, and I think that Medina Spirit has as good as any of a chance of, of winning this race. You saw it come as an underdog in first place in the Kentucky Derby. And this race is 9.5 furlongs, which is a little bit shorter than the Kentucky Derby. So, you know, it could be that we see some horses who weren't quite in the running two weekends ago show up this weekend. Yeah, there's, there are a bunch of horses, and, and we can go through them, but there's a, a few horses that, are go, that could very well uh, give Medina Spirit a run for their money. One of them's coming out of the five slot, and that's Midnight Bourbon. It was a five to one. It's a it's a descendant of Tisnow. Tisnow was a, a pretty good horse, ridden by Irod Ortiz Jr. And I like Irod Ortiz Jr. a lot. I saw him take a spill at Saratoga once. I, like I'm talking a spill. I thought he was dead, kind of spill. And yeah, I don't know what it is with these jockeys. They just know how to bounce off a racetrack. He he got up. And he he walked away from falling off a horse that was racing around a turn, and and he just got just missed getting trampled. Uh, he's on Midnight Bourbon, Irod Ortiz Jr. And Irod Ortiz, uh, I'm sorry, Midnight Bourbon was sixth in the Kentucky Derby, eight and a half lengths back. Now it's possible that this horse could come back and upset Medina Spirit if. It runs. That's one of the horses at five, five to one that I think could absolutely win this race. And another one is a is running out of the ten slot. That's Concert Tour, another Bob Baffert horse ridden by Mike Smith, and that's a five to two. And I think that that's a possibility. Ran a mile and an eighth at the Wood Memorial, came in third, and 
there's a, a good possibility that that horse could win. You know, are the others, I, I don't know. There, there's, you can always go for an upset. An interesting thing happened with uh, France Go Adina out of the seventh slot today. It's training rider was riding the horse and got thrown. He said he slipped off the horse and he fell to the track. It's funny because the trainer said, oh, the horse is fine. <laughs> The, the trainer had the training rider happens to be fine too, but the, the trainer said nothing about the training rider. But the horse is good, good to go. But that this this for France go Adina out of the seventh slot. Well, this is its first race in the United States, a Japanese horse, and it, this is going to be its first run in the United States. So it'll be that'll be an interesting one. I don't think that one's going to be there in the end, but you know, crowded trade perhaps. A ten to one. There, there's a bunch here that could give, but those are the three: Medina Spirit, Midnight Bourbon, and Concert Trade. Are those my those? Um, I'm sorry, Concert Tour. Those are those are my picks for this race. I think it's hard to bet against Medina Spirit, especially after the showing at Churchill Downs. It was wire to wire. It wasn't particularly that's absolutely close right of a race, and this is a shorter race now, so I don't really see Medina Spirit having any trouble taking this one it's a kind of lame to pick the favorite but i think that medina spirit has as good of a chance as any as i said before that's my pick for the race yeah and you know the the horses running out of the six and the seven seven is france go uh go de ina uh that's the one in rombauer rombauer is a is a pretty big long shot that's a 12 to one but i think that's a, a bigger long shot than that now if you're looking at you know where do the winners in the Preakness come from? Six have come out. Sixteen, pardon me, have come out of the of post six. Fourteen have come out of post seven. Those are the most that have come out of those you know slots. So take that for what you will. And the one through eight, they're all in double digits. So they're all kind of right there. So if you're thinking, oh, you know, we'll, we'll look at a slot. You know, one through eight are all in double digits in Preakness wins. And that's since, you know, they've been using Gates in 1909. So, you know, if you're going to pick a horse, my guess would go from one through eight. After that, the nine slot is four. There's only 10 horses in this race. And the 10 slot is two. So, you know, take that for what you will. And I will say one, one last thing, one last thing before we switch subjects. Uh, crowded trade. I know you mentioned crowded trade, but Javier Castellano is going to be on crowded trade. One of my favorites. We, we are big Javier Castellano fans, so have to give him a shout out. The Venezuelan running in his ninth Preakness this year. Uh, two Preakness wins, so can never count him out, even though the horse is currently running around 10 to 1. A long shot, but in the run. It came in third in the Wood Memorial. Now, I will say the favorite for the Kentucky Derby, Essential Quality, and the two-horse Mandaloon, they will not run in the Preakness. Uh, I'm hearing that Essential Quality is uh, gearing up for the Travers, which will be in August. That's up in Saratoga. The last Travers I watched at Saratoga, and you'll remember this, was a dead heat. That was interesting. That was Alpha. And, Alpha and Golden and, Ticket. And I Golden that. Ticket. Alpha was the favorite, and Golden Ticket was a 33 to 1 long shot. It was the first time they had a dead heat since 1874. So uh, that was interesting. So you, you, if you, you're looking for Essential Quality, who was the favorite in the Kentucky Derby, came in fourth, uh, head up to Saratoga. You'll probably see him running this Travers. 
I feel bad for the people who make those shirts up at the Traverse Stakes that have the horse winners from every year because it's like in very neat columns. And then you have one year where two horses win. And I don't know how they figured that out, but hopefully <laughs> hopefully they, they made it look pretty. I'm sure it'll all work out okay. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's move subjects now to the National Basketball Association. And on Wednesday night, a beautiful thing happened. The New York Knicks clinched the playoffs for the first time in a long time. The last time they were in the playoffs, Barack Obama was the president. So that can give you an idea of just how long it's been. But the Knicks are back. Yeah, not only the Knicks back, but they, they've clinched a regular playoff spot, not even the play-in tournament. So they've clinched. They're, right now they're sitting in sixth. They have some you know, tough matchups to end the year. They were fourth for a number of months, or I'm sorry, a number of weeks. But now they're in the sixth slot right behind Miami. Atlanta has moved up to four. Atlanta has two games remaining. Both the Heat and the Knicks have three games remaining. And I think the Heat, well, the Knicks, I think, have the toughest schedule. They play San Antonio, Charlotte, and Boston. Those are their remaining games. They play San Antonio tonight. Now, that's a winnable game. San Antonio right now hasn't clinched anything yet. They are teetering in that 10th spot. They're two games ahead of Sacramento. Now, that's a possibility that they could fall out, but the Knicks could put a little damper in their hopes tonight if they can somehow pick off a win against the Spurs, who are under 500, and the Knicks, who are above 500 by seven games. So, you know, the Knicks are in that sixth slot. They could move up, but Atlanta plays Orlando and Houston, which are two of the worst teams in the NBA. The Heat play the 76ers tonight. So if the Knicks could figure out how to pick off uh, the Spurs and the 76ers can figure out, and they they're still play, they still have to play hard because they could lose the number one seed to the Nets. So the 76ers are actually coming off a loss. They are going to be playing hard against the Heat. And the Heat then have the Bucks, who are entrenched in that third slot. I don't think that they can move up or down. And then they finish up with the Pistons, the pride of last place in the Eastern Conference. I will say that I think that the Heat Sixers, I mean, we'll know the outcome of this matchup by the time this podcast is published. Right. But the Heat have no Jimmy Butler tonight against the Sixers. So I think that the Sixers are going to be able to win that game. And then going up against the Bucks, it's possible that the Bucks are resting their guys, but you never know. I mean, that could be the final tune-up for them before the playoffs. So I think the Heat will probably go one and two here in the late going, which means the Knicks will likely match up against the Hawks. It remains to be seen who's going to be the eight seed. I mean, who's going to be the four seed and who's going to be the five seed because the Hawks have the Magic and Rockets, which are two cupcake games. The Knicks win out. They will be the four seed. But that's a big, it's a big if because the Knicks schedule the rest of the way is it's not incredibly difficult. It's the Spurs, Hornets, and Celtics, which are three winnable games. Absolutely. But the Hornets and Celtics, you get the Celtics on the back end of a back-to-back. The Celtics are going to be on the back end of a back-to-back as well. So you hope that it affects both teams equally if you're a Knicks fan. But the Celtics are also fighting for playoff seeding of their own. They're, they seem to be pretty locked into the seventh spot, but with two losses, they could potentially fall. And so, they've lost four in a row. Yeah, the Celtics have something to play for, too. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to watch to see how the seeding shakes out 
in the Eastern Conference. Now, in the Western Conference, the Jazz are probably going to finish as the one seed. Suns, Clippers, Nuggets seem all locked into the two through four. There could be some movement. I think it's going to be Jazz, Suns, one, two, and then Clippers, Nuggets, three, four in that order. But there could be some movement. Uh, The Trailblazers and Mavericks are five and six right now. They're both nine games out. The Lakers are 10 games out. And it's really important to watch these teams as well because the Lakers have two games coming up against the Pacers and Pelicans, both winnable games. The Lakers just got beaten by the Mavericks. Right. So if the Mavericks and Trailblazers don't drop any games, the Lakers are going to end up in the playing tournament. That's right. That's right. And that is definitely not somewhere you ever expect LeBron James to be. They're a dangerous team, even out of the seven slot, the eight slot, even the nine slot. They're a dangerous team because it's the Lakers and LeBron. But seeing them in the playoff tournament would be interesting because they they have not struggled necessarily, but they haven't been playing their best basketball all season. Now keep in mind, LeBron has been hurt for a period of time. As has AD, and AD tweaked uh, a hamstring against the Knicks on Tuesday night. Yeah, so so we could see some movement here from the Lakers in either direction. Uh, but regardless of what happens, if you're the Suns and you're the two seed, you do not look forward to a matchup with the Lakers in the first round. Yeah, I'd have to look at their head-to-head uh, the Phoenix Suns and the Lakers to see where that sits. But no, I, I don't think you want to be playing the Lakers. Now, LeBron is didn't play Tuesday against the Knicks, and the Lakers still beat the Knicks. I was a little unhappy with the way the Knicks played. I had the privilege of listening to that game because it was a West Coast game. I was driving back from Hartford. I was able to listen to the end of that game, which went to overtime, and it sounded like the Knicks were playing two on five because everything was going through Julius Randle and Derrick Rose. They need to get more players involved in order to be successful. I think, look, you you can lean on those guys. Derrick Rose obviously has the experience. Julius Randle having a phenomenal breakout season for him. But you have to get everyone involved. It's, it's, it's just the way playoff basketball is. Yeah, I think you kind of have to throw out all of the season standings when the playoffs start. Because the Suns are 2-1 and one against the Lakers this year. They won two games in March and dropped a game recently, May 9th. But even with those games in the books, I don't really think it informs very much. Because as we know, some of these guys just turn it on when the playoffs come. Like LeBron, there are games that he sat out the regular season. He probably wouldn't be sitting out in the playoffs. And an off day for LeBron in the playoffs is still like 25 points and 8 rebounds and 8 assists. Yep. So... Like, I really think you kind of just got to throw everything out the window. Once the playoffs start, it's a whole new ballgame. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Well, we switch gears here. It's another big day, Max, for the New York Mets. And not because it's a big day for the for the Mets, but it's because they're missing something. And it was a trade that sent one of their top prospects, Jared Kalenic, to the Seattle, uh, Seattle Mariners for someone who's not even playing. And someone who's pitching okay this season, uh, Edwin Diaz and Robbie Cano, obviously suspended for the season. But Jared Kalenic is being called up by the Mariners. And by all accounts, he's going to be a superstar and a superstar that should be playing in New York. Yeah, it's interesting because while Jared Kalenic is getting called up, Paul Sewell, former Matt, is also getting called up by the Mariners. So... 
they have a lot of former Mets on it. No, but it, 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 seriously, uh, Jared Kalanick is obviously a very, very talented player. People have been anticipating his ascent to the major leagues, and he's finally here. He's expected to start in left field and bat leadoff tonight. And then Logan Gilbert, who was the 14th overall pick the same year that Kalanick was the sixth overall pick, he's going to start on the mound. So it kind of is a changing of the guard here for the Mariners. They have a very strong farm system, and we're finally seeing the fruits of that labor in rebuilding the farm system come into the major leagues. By the time this airs, they will both have made their debuts, but by the time I'm saying this, it's tonight. Uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens. It's really unfortunate. I don't think that anybody who's a Mets fan at the time of the trade thought that this was a good deal by any stretch of the imagination because they also gave up Justin Dunn, who's been in the major leagues for up and down the last couple seasons for the Mariners. Uh, I don't think he's a huge piece, but a serviceable swingman, without a doubt. Uh, but Kalanick is, is projected to be one of these franchise-changing perennial all-star types. And I liked him when he was drafted. I wasn't too psyched when they traded him. And at this point, I'm just glad he's not in the National League because he's going to be as far away from the Mets as possible. He won't be able to become a Met killer. And it sounds like due to the fact that Seattle has waited so long this season to call him up. I mean, I don't know that his defense suddenly became ready on May 13th to make it to the major leagues. Like, I think it's pretty clear that Seattle was manipulating his service time to get an extra year <laughs> of team control. Yep. But he wasn't too thrilled about that. And it sounds like he's not even going to negotiate a contract extension with this team. Like he's already set on hitting free agency in six years and change. So that's really not an auspicious start for the Man Mariners from a managerial perspective, but they do have one of the guys who's projected to be the next big thing in baseball. And as a Mets fan, it kind of makes me sad. As a baseball fan, I'm really excited to see what he has to do. Yeah, and I think this is a good time, Max, to bring in our, I guess, our minor league baseball prospect guy, and I will let you do the honors. All right, now we're going to bring on Keith Rad, who I have the privilege of calling a good friend. He's a play-by-play -play broadcaster for the Brooklyn Cyclones. He also broadcasts college sports for Wagner College on Staten Island, and he's made a bunch of stops along the way to finally get to Brooklyn, a seasoned minor league play-by-play -play veteran, as well as, like I said before, a good friend. Keith, thanks for joining us on the show. It's good to be in the company of the Brills. You always know you're in good company. The best smiles there are. Good to see you guys. All right, it well, is great I've, to see you. I have a very important question to start you off with, which is, how are the vibes around the office and around MCU Park now that Brooklyn is a full-season baseball club? Uh, the vibes are still, as of this recording, um, happy, but still I, there's a season going on. It hasn't happened here yet. We have had the privilege of 12 games on the road to start. So while we're seeing the team play on MILB TV on screens, until it happens in front of our faces, uh, we won't believe it, but uh, no, everybody's so excited to be to be back doing this again. Uh, we, we've been kind of delayed getting started here internally just because uh, we, we we didn't believe that this was happening. And we were waiting for, oh, they might cancel the season again or there might be a delay to the season again because uh, they had pushed the AAA start back. So we thought, uh oh, don't get too excited. So uh, we're all thrilled. We're all back doing it, putting in some late hours, getting ready. But until there's 
a team on the field in front of our faces, we, we probably won't believe it. Keith, what's it been like? I, I know it's only been 12 games or 12 days, every Monday off, but six game series, you're seeing the same team for six games instead of a three or four game series. It's a little different this year than it ever has been in the past. Yeah, so the six-game series, we anticipated um, maybe some some tempers flaring, some fights. Uh, we haven't seen that quite yet. Uh, what well, we will find out, uh, we start 12 with a different division, and then when we come home, we'll be playing some of the same teams, Hudson Valley, Wilmington, Jersey Shore, Aberdeen. I think we're playing Hudson Valley like 30 times. So Ed Blankmeyer, our manager, jokes that, you know, our players are going to know the other players' girlfriends at that point. Like we're going to really get to know some of these, these people and some of their personnel. Uh, and I was in the Texas league, which we had sometimes four and five game series and you playing the same. There's only eight teams in the league. You're playing the same people over and over again. Uh, it's always a unique experience, but for here so far, it's just going to be um, a lot of familiarity. I know in the, and we haven't seen that many tempers flare though, but uh, Max, you might remember, when we went to Tri-City in 19, they had a second baseman, Luis Santana, who was part of the J.D. Davis trade. And Luis uh, hit two home runs against us last uh, last week in Asheville. And he hit the first one. Okay, great. Second one he hit, he bat-flipped, guys, 30 feet into the air, just chucked the bat into the air. And Hayden Sanger, our catcher, I saw there's a video Asheville posted, and he's like ducking out of the way, making sure this thing doesn't hit. Uh, the video went viral immediately. It, it had like a million views in like one night. And so the next day I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. Uh, but nothing ever happened. And, and while I'm like professional saying, yeah, okay. Everyone was mature. I was kind of surprised that nobody threw it Luis, uh, or anything, but he's a former Mets prospect. So maybe they're all still buddies, but that was uh, I don't know if you saw that, but it was a bat flip to be remembered. <laughs> yeah, I, I did see that. And I think that this year in the minor leagues, we've seen more of a let the kids play attitude because I don't know if you saw Wander Franco's home run on Saturday, but he hit one 450 feet and just watched the ball until it got out of the park and basically walked around the bases. Last six steps towards home were literally walking. And then in between innings, when he was going back out to shortstop, he was staring into the other team's dugout the entire way out there. And as far as I'm aware, no retaliation for it. So I think that we're kind of seeing more of that. I think Santana's bat flip was maybe a little over the top, but I liked it. Uh, and I hope that we get to see more flair like that in the future, because I think it's really good for the game. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely let the kids play and then there's craziness. I'm sure we'll find out what the line is this year. Um, when we start to push the barrier a little bit, um, but yeah, I mean, we'll find out what the line is. I, who knows? Like when Santana bat flipped, he didn't really, stare anybody down or like yell at the mound or anything like that. He just kind of celebrated the Wander Franco one though, where he's staring across in the dugout. That's just natural intimidation. And I think three of us are New Yorkers as well. If someone's staring at you on the subway, you know, let, let the, let the, let the people ride the subway. No, it's uh, why are you staring at me? And let's find out about this. <laughs> we were, Max and I were talking about uh, Jared clinic earlier and the fact that the Mariners are bringing him up, obviously former Mets prospect and uh, happened, you know, got sent to Seattle in that trade for Robbie Cano and Edwin Diaz. What's it like for you when a guy with that kind, obviously you're not only an announcer, but a fan because you get to watch these guys early on, right? Right now you're in high A, so you get a full season to watch these guys. What's it like when the Mets ships someone like that out and you're like, Really? That's what we got in return for someone like him? 
Yeah, with him, it's so it's such a shame because prospects like this over the years get dealt, and then you you hear their name. They'll he was so far away. I think he was a year in. He's out of high school. Some of those guys fade out. You never even hear of them in these big trades. But he just happens to be a dude. So uh, and now he's uh, getting called up, uh, which makes it even even worse for for Mets fans. Um, but yeah, like when you're in the minor leagues, you you see these players and even the ones that aren't top prospects, you're, you're always rooting for them to do to do well. But when you have a guy like him, who's such a transcendent power, the next guy, he he he's well, we'll see in Seattle, a p- potential perennial all star. Uh, you, you're happy that he's playing well, but you're like, man, the, those the, the poor Mets uh, trading away the, the future of the team. It's actually like I'm glad the door to my office is closed because it's kind of a curse word around here saying Jared Kelnick uh, out loud because it still it still stings. But the, the the reason that the trade stings so badly is because he's not fading out, fizzing out. He's going to be a beast in the big leagues. Yeah, and you never want to root for these guys to fizzle out, but when they're not playing for the organization that you're involved with, it's kind of harder to root for them. But Brooklyn this year does have a lot of excellent players. Ronnie Mauricio was named the, I don't know what they're calling these leagues anymore, East <laughs> Northeast League. The league I'm scouting every day is the Southeast Low A. I think that's what it's called Southeast. Like that's not, Florida State League sounds so much better. But the, the Cyclones have, I would say, improved since they won the title in 2019, a lot of the players have come back. Who have you been most excited to watch from afar and are most excited to see when they come home next week? Yeah. I mean, Max, I'll just say Brett Beatty right off the bat. I mean, you were there in 19 at the end of the year where he got called up from Kingsport. And I mean, I'll just say Brett Beatty looked like he, like the baby fat 19 year old kid, you know, kind of gangly looking and strong. Um, one thing that Edgardo Alfonso told me at the end of the year, which is, you know, this is no judgment or anything, but he said, you know, this, this kid's got kind of a bigger body. He's, he's got to be careful. He, he seems like he could put on weight quickly with that body frame, uh, which is just a, just a scout thought. People might think we're calling Brett Beatty fat or not. And then seeing him over the, the past two, a year and a half develop, he's a, he's a man, he's a chiseled human man, adult man now. So uh, there's no worry about the, the baby fat, um, weighing him down at all but uh, i'm excited to see him uh he's hitting uh he, he hasn't hit a home run yet his his plate awareness is big league ready i think and then ronnie mauricio his coming into this year uh and the questions that were surrounding him he's a, a switch hitting shortstop was you know can he hit for power uh where is it is it showing up uh and with both of those guys it is showing up mauricio's hit three homers already leads the league in extra base hits i know we're only maybe a week and a half in, but those questions have been answered. Um, so those guys this year where there's no playoffs, so there's maybe for the fans, there's no real reason to like watch the standings every single second of the day, but it's a chance to really get these guys back in front of you. These maybe future Jared Kelnick's or future Michael Conforto's that'll be in, in city field one day and see how they develop over a year and a half out. And now that they're finally playing, see how they do develop and right in front of, Brooklyn, New York City fans' eyes. If they don't want to go to City Field, they can come to us, and they can watch guys that will eventually play in City Field and really know who's next. We are probably the. I mean, St. Lucie has a good battle with Pico Armstrong and Francisco Alvarez for um, top prospects in the system, but we like to think in Brooklyn that we we host uh, the best show of the four affiliates this year. 
Pete, what's it like to have a guy like Ronnie Mauricio down there? I, I know it's he, he's a little bit away. He's projected maybe to make a you know get there in 2022. But now he's got a guy in front of him, Francisco Lindor, who's going to be with the Mets for the next 10 years. So for a shortstop like Ronnie Mauricio, he may have to change to second base to get to the major leagues, at least in a Mets uniform. Yeah, that that that's always I was actually thinking about that. Um, I, I ride the subway for many, many stops, so I do a lot of thinking those 26 stops into Manhattan. Uh but yeah, I was I was thinking about that the other day. What what does he feel? And I've I've yet to actually get to know him enough to ask him a personal question like that, which is probably right on the top of his mind. Uh, but with someone like him, you know, you're so far away, quote unquote. You're high A. You still know you have a lot of time to develop. As I mentioned, the the player of the week and home runs. Uh, both Beatty and Mauricio are committing sometimes two errors a night. They have a lot of work to do with their glove. Um, so there's a, there's a long way to go there. It's still the minor leagues and people are like, wow, they should be a double a now. I'm like, keep watching. Uh, <laughs> we got to tune it up defensively. Um, but yeah, like Mauricio would switch to third or, or second base. And we're seeing that so many, so much now with prospects, especially in the Mets organization, they want these guys to be versatile they want them to play multiple positions um, for for themselves and to be uh, to have tradeability as well. I mean, I hate I hate to say it, but you're you're exactly right, uh, Andy, about about Mauricio being a great prospect. But they have a shortstop, and the Mets this year maybe make a run. Do they get rid of him for somebody huge, a big bat, a big arm? Who knows? That's always part of it too. I will live and die by the the old adage that the minor leagues exists to make the major league team better, no matter what, no matter how that plays out um but yeah when when ronnie's here and uh and he's not dancing on tiktok and having a good time and partying and i'll try to get it pull him aside and say you know what what was that like that when they signed lindor i mean i'm sure it's tongue-in-cheek but uh yeah i mean does lindor get traded in the future by the time ronnie's ready or but does he move in his you know 10 year long contract and is he swift and nimble when he's in his late 30s uh playing shorts who who knows you you have no idea, but it would be a good question to ask him, definitely. All right. I, I have one one more about the players on the Cyclones this year. We have a lot of returnees. Dan Goggin, Andrew Edwards, Jake Mangum, Antoine Duplantis, among others. Has it been strange for you at all to get these repeat guys, as many as there are? Because when you've been with the Cyclones, usually you don't have that much repeat. But because Brooklyn moved up a level – a ton of guys are still there. How has that been for you already having those relationships and, and seeing the usual suspects around? Uh, yeah, it is. It's definitely different um, because of the, I think my eyes stay the same. The league changes, but the guy's eyes and experience change. I mean, at this level or what we used to be at short season, these guys would get drafted and in a week they'd be in a professional setting. They sign a contract. They, the big bright lights, they get a Jersey. They're playing for money. Now it's so exciting you want to interview them. They want to talk to you back. Uh, now they've kind of been around the block a little bit, uh, a little bit older. Uh, they get it. Uh, they see that it's a business now, maybe that they didn't in the past. Um, but it's still the same great group of, of guys. And I think now they, th for them, they're, they're kind of interesting with, with where they are at their development. That short season is only a couple of games for the rest of the summer. And then the next year back, they find out, what they can really do over a full season. Can they really last for 120 games? Can they get better? Can they get stronger? So that's the challenge of this year. 
And I think it's a little more of a serious topic for them, whereas that short season is very exciting and fun. And, you know, like a, a guy like Antoine Duplantis, who uh, this year will really have to prove that he can hit over a full season. I mean, he only hit 200 when he was with the Cyclones and they had, they won the championship and he was a big part of that. I mean, he had some big hits, but he really didn't put together a great year. Now he has to put together a great year. And we're talking about somebody who uh, is the all-time hits leader at LSU, not just some, someone else named Antoine Duplantis. Uh, so, so that's why it is exciting this year uh, with this group coming back, because we don't really know what they're all about yet and neither do they. So uh, luckily, like you said, Max, they're, I hate when people say they're good makeup, good character guys, but they really are. Uh, they really are good, good dudes. Uh, and anyone who walks in the clubhouse says clones are hot is all right with me. So, do you expect uh, the Cyclones? And I know that St. Lucie's short season now. Uh, do you expect to see Francisco Alvarez or Pico Armstrong in Brooklyn at some point? I think to Francisco Alvarez, great position. He's a catcher. So if he can hit five something, which he's hitting right now, it would be a great addition and a great stepping stone to get him closer to the major leagues where, you know, anyone could use a good hitting catcher. Uh, and of course, Pico Armstrong is, a, you know, a high draft pick for the Mets. Uh, yeah, so so for for Loe Saint Saint Lucie, um, I was just talking to their broadcaster Adam McDonald the other day, and we were uh, doing our Amazing Starts Here podcast with Billy Harner, who is our director of communications. Um, who, if he could drive down to Saint Lucie and pick up Pico Armstrong himself and put him in his van, he probably would do that. Uh, that that's an interesting question as well, as far as the speed in which these guys will get moved up. Uh, there's a new farm director who actually became the new assistant hitting coach for the Mets, but uh, there's a new uh, regime put in place. These guys have had a year off. How quickly do they get moved up? And for uh, most of the guys on the Cyclones who are high A that might have started at low A, they, they jumped a level. Uh, they, they're trying to challenge guys like Beatty um, this year. For Alvarez and Pete Armstrong, they could 100,000 bajillion percent play their way out of out of St. Lucie and say out of that league. And um, I, I can actually defer to Max on this and turn the tables on him. And from a scout's eyes, uh, sometimes, he, like you mentioned, the, the inflated numbers uh, for these guys, but it's more than that when, when you turn in terms of maturity and, and what they would need to get to high A and what they're already demonstrating to get to high A. So um, I think they could, could move for sure. I mean, I'll, I'll even nut Max. What do you think about is, for as what a, what a scout would look like or a farm director would say, yeah, that this is we're seeing the right things that we need to see to move these guys up. I think there's a bunch of factors at play. It's one of the big things is that in the minor leagues, you're not necessarily looking for stats, right? Like if you look at Ronnie Mauricio's numbers in his minor league career, they don't jump off the page. This is not a guy who you would look at and say, hey, like he's definitely having success. Let's move him up. But it's kind of just a natural progression. They grow as people adding strength, like you mentioned, but also the baseball actions. Are they there? You know, you're not expecting 19 year old to hit 40 home runs, but he could in the future if he grows. So you want to make sure that whatever level you're placing them at, they're going to be able to have some semblance of success. You know, if you're pushing a guy as the Mets have done with Mauricio and he's not having success, that kills the mental factor, which is mm -hmm. a huge, huge inhibitor to, to their development. So I would say that, in moving up, I think that teams aren't necessarily going to be as aggressive as we've maybe seen in the past, just with the reduction of the number of teams. But it's not all about the numbers. You know, guys are sometimes ready when 
the team looks at them and says, okay, this is a guy we can move up. We think he can handle better pitching. We think he can handle better breaking balls, whatever the case may be. And another thing is that it's going to be especially interesting to watch how catchers move up for the Mets now from Mm -hmm. St. Lucie to Brooklyn, because they're using an automated strike zone down here in Florida four days out of the week. And it's been very strange to watch the catching so far. You can't really get a great read on like whether guys are good framers because you only get to watch them catch one game a week with human umpires. So that, that's <laughs> just something to watch from here on out. Yeah, you might not even have that as a factor in your scouting anymore, uh, being able to frame pitches because if that makes it all the way to the, ba- the big leagues and it's those poor umpires are just standing there with somebody and they were telling them ball or strike. Uh, yeah, you don't even need to worry about that anymore. But But yes, to answer the original question, We'd love Alvarez. We'd love PCA to get here uh, as fast as possible. Uh, one last question about the eye test. And I know, you know, that's how scouts work. But, you know, given the year off, these guys have had a year off. You mentioned the errors by Ronnie Mauricio, Brett Beatty. Do you think that that has something to do with, like, not really playing for a year? It's, it's hard to simulate game action when you're at home working out and trying to stay on, you know, whatever the trainer gave you to stay in shape. But it, from the, the eye test that you've seen over, I guess, the first 12 games, do you think that that year off has hurt development at all? Yeah, so for for those guys specifically, Beatty and Mauricio have definitely been making their fair share of errors. Uh, and for them, they've, they were actually at the alternate site in Brooklyn getting some work in, or they were at Instructs in Florida getting some work in. So they were working, but I, I think the difference is these games actually mean something. You're not playing sim games even though you're you're maybe in a a sim game in Florida with a a big league guy and you you feel like you need to get get in the game mentally. Uh, And there's fans too. I mean, a lot of our pitchers in in week one, good pitchers, they just got blown up. They didn't last through the second or third inning and the moment got to them. And I felt like that was a big, uh, the the big reason for that is, you know, fans and another team putting, putting real pressure on you. This is not a fake four games, you know, sim game. And all right, Max, you're going to go take six at bats in a row and, you know, I'll play, I'll be over here at shortstop taking ground balls. It's uh, so some of those guys got the technical work in, but the game experience now is, a, is that added pressure um, that, that they have to deal with. All right. Last question for you, Keith. Best pizza in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, this is tough. Um, yeah. So I, I did gonna, before you answer. I also want to apologize. I did text you before that they would be all softballs, and this is definitely not one. This is not so. a softball, but but I am a emotion. I'm an emotional eater. I am somebody who, after a tough day, goes to get something to eat that is not good for you. And if I were having the not the worst day, but I wanted to have the best experience, I'd probably jump on a city bike and I'd go to Prince Street Pizza, and I would get a a spicy a spicy slice. So a square slice with pepperoni cups that are radiant um, and pools of oil that are deep. And I would go to, I'd go to Prince street pizza probably nine out of 10 times. So that's my, that's my vote. That is my vote. I, I, I would love, I'd love to hear from you guys too. Cause you, I'm, I'm on, I'm on the Upper East side. So I'm in the same vicinity. So there's probably some good places up there. I know where you guys hang out. 
Dad, do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? <laughs> uh, you know what? <laughs> because of the carb thing, I try and stay away from pizza. But it, it, there's, look, you know, brick oven stuff is is really good. But you know, Zesty right on Ninety Sixth Street makes good pizza, as well as uh, the place the, that we we frequent most of the time, which is on, uh, I guess, says Zesty's on Third Avenue. Uh, the other place is on Ninety Sixth Street, so they're probably the closest. But they also make really good pizza. I think part of the beauty of New York pizza is that you can really get a good slice anywhere. Uh, I've become partial to Joe's. I think there's a part of me that has become partial to it because they opened up a location in Ann Arbor. And so okay, there you go. Getting, there you go. <laughs> like getting New York pizza in Michigan is really like being spoiled. So I, I'm partial to Joe's. But, you know, I think, again, part of the beauty of New York, you can get a good slice anywhere. So now that you're in Florida, though. There's, there's got to be some transplants, some seven-year-old dude from Brooklyn who, you know, brought the water with him when he went down there. So where, where are you eating your pizza? Now? It's so funny that you say that because there's a restaurant that's about a 15-minute drive from me called Cristiano's. That these, it's these two Italian guys who immigrated from Italy to Brooklyn and then they moved down here to open an Italian restaurant and it's amazing. It's brick oven pizza. The Italian food is great. I mean, like you really cannot make this up. Like that there is a great New York-style Italian place in Clearwater, Florida. But a blessing. It is a blessing. I will tell you that some of the best pizza we make right here in the backyard in our own pizza oven. So that's, you know, it's it's a perk of having a little backyard in Manhattan is getting to make your own pizza. Well, the lucky part is I'm not too far. So maybe I'll follow, my, own, I'll follow my nostrils one day. <laughs> right. Hop on over and we can, we, you, you can make your own. I'll even grab the pepperonis for you. Oh, my God. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I'm starving, there. actually, after this conversation. <laughs> Keith, it's been a, a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for joining us. Hopefully you can come back again soon, maybe after the Cyclones win the championship in 2021. Uh, but until then, thanks again for coming on and, and uh, good luck with the home opener next week. It's so good to be on the podcast by committee. So thanks uh, thanks again, guys. Good, good to see you. You are the chairman of today's committee. <laughs> of today's. Tomorrow, somebody different. All right. Well, next week. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate it. Well, Dad, always good to talk to Keith. Keith is a really good friend. I'm lucky to call him a really good friend. The voice of the Brooklyn Cyclones. So if you have any interest, head on over to MILB.TV. You can listen to Keith, his sultry voice, announcing the Cyclones games. Hopefully the Cyclones wins. Uh, And I got a lot of quality time with him on long bus rides in the minor leagues in 2019. Just a really good guy, a very talented announcer. Uh, and uh, I'm glad that he was able to join us. Absolutely, and he's uh, he does have that voice, and he's an excellent play-by-play guy, and you know maybe we'll have the opportunity to move up someday, although I know that uh, he enjoys doing the Cyclones games. But one last subject, Max, before we, we end our podcast this week, and that's the French Open, which was supposed to start. Uh, this comes out Friday the 14th, I think the French Open was supposed to start the following weekend. Not going to start now until May 30th, Memorial Day weekend. And France is going through their stuff uh, still with coronavirus and the pandemic. And they are full on lockdown right now. Uh, I think that they're supposed to be easing up on some of the restrictions within the, the next couple days. And they're hoping to have some fans at the French Open. But it is not going to be easy to get this off the ground. I know they're playing in a bubble and it, it, it some of the rules are, are a little out there. Yeah, they are playing in a bubble, but it's strange because 
the French Open players are going to be allowed a daily one-hour window outside of the social distancing bubble. This was announced on Wednesday. And I don't really understand what the point of the bubble is if you're going to do that, right? Like, if the players are going to be outside the bubble, it's not a bubble. It's just lunacy. Like, if you're going to subject the players to these restrictions, then you need to keep the restrictions in place. But the tournament director, he said that, this is a quote, he said, our goal is not to put them in a necklace and attach them to their hotel or to the Roland Garros Stadium, unquote. It's like, okay, I get it. You don't want to attach them. But by the same token, if you're trying to keep them safe and keep them in a bubble, maybe that's what has to be done. I just, I think that there's really mixed messaging here. It doesn't make sense to let them outside the bubble because then it's not a bubble. It's just you're loosely enforcing whatever it is. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm excited for the tournament. I'm hopeful that Rafa can gain his clay court form back because he's the best clay court player of all time. He's been struggling more than usual on clay, which doesn't say much because his usual is that he literally never loses. And he's actually lost, I think, one match on clay this year, which is very out of character for him. Uh, But it'll be a fun tournament regardless of what happens there. Yeah, absolutely. And they've had, France has had some really, really big issues trying to control coronavirus. And uh, they've had issues with trying to roll out the vaccine as well. So it doesn't make any sense the rules they're coming up with to let people be out and about for an hour. Look, it doesn't take long for something to travel and get in your system. And I'll, I'll be uh, watching to see what testing protocols and stuff like that they come up with and if someone comes down with it how they're going to react because it could blow the whole tournament sky high it definitely could and you know kind of just one of those wait and see things i feel like we have a lot of those on the podcast but this one just as appropriate as any of the others without a doubt this has been another episode of podcast by committee with andrew and max brill make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, or any other podcast platform, we're on there. And rate review us on Apple while you're at it. It'll only take a couple seconds, so go on over there and give us a five-star review and rating. If you want to connect with us, we're on Instagram at podcast by underscore by underscore committee and Twitter at pod by committee, or you can reach out to us via email hosts at podcastbycommittee.com. Thanks again for listening to Podcast by Committee. Special thanks to today's chairman of the committee, Keith Redd, voice of the Brooklyn Cyclones. Thanks again to Mason Pettit for the introduction, Kevin McLeod for the music, and shout out to Pre Kliegerman for the graphics. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe.